1: He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 were present. After he had sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Delamanthua. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus, to test him. They asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat and crossed to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warns them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, it is because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember? Remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, Seven. He said to them, Do you still not understand? They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's hands and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, Don't even go into the village.
0: Let's continue on in this chapter. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory and with the holy angels.
2: Well, good evening. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's my privilege to... Uh, lead us through this central passage of Mark's Gospel. And if you're new here tonight, and if Mark is unfamiliar to you, that's okay. It is a hectic passage, I'm going to warn you. Uh, but I'm glad that you're here, and I'd love to chat with you afterwards if you have questions. Now, I reckon everyone has something to say about Jesus. And, and that's partly because Jesus is a real figure of history. You will struggle to find a credible historian who doubts the historicity of Jesus, which leaves us thinking about, well, who is he? Everyone, I think, has got something to say about that. Uh, as I kind of trawled the internet, um, some see kind of the good teacher Jesus. Uh, this is kind of, you know, when you see this kind of Jesus, it changes the way you respond to him. It changes the way you live your life. Um, and this, kind of, this kind, of, kind of good teacher Jesus, he's full of good morals. Uh, you want to kind of listen to that. You know, you might want to judge people with that kind of morals if you like. Uh, you might want to send your kids to a Christian school so they get those good morals and kind of get their kind of compass sorted and all that kind of stuff, right? That's if Jesus is good teacher Jesus, and that's all he is. Or, or maybe buddy Jesus. Uh, this this Jesus, he's a great friend. He wants to hang out with you. He's cool. You're cool. You know, just want That's you know, things like that. What about right wing Jesus? I don't want really to get too political. There is a flag on that. Uh, and it wasn't too hard to find those pictures, there's many of them on the internet. Uh, but this picture is all about power and, and justice. And, and if that's your picture of Jesus, then it is going to shape the way that you seek power and justice in this world. And maybe wear a cool blazer. Or maybe, maybe there's kind of, I see Jesus in everything kind of version. Uh, that is kind of, you know, to go to church is actually to sort of go walk in the bush uh, and just be amongst nature because Jesus is that life force that kind of holds all things together. You just want to embrace that somehow. However you see Jesus is going to shape your response to him and how you live in this world. Today's passage, because we could go on for all kinds of versions of Jesus, but today's passage is flat out about seeing Jesus. That we might see him for who he is and respond to him accordingly. Now, what I find interesting is that this is at the very center of Mark's gospel. And it doesn't give us kind of a grand picture of humanity It doesn't kind of rally us towards, you know, that rally cry or kind of even give us a bunch of moral imperatives. Instead, it is the simple and altogether not so simple story of seeing Jesus. Now, we've been told from the very beginning, if you have been following along, you know, chapter 1, verse 1, this is the beginning of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So we kind of get like right from the beginning, that's who Jesus is. We've been in a privileged position as readers of the text, Uh, But from that point, from verse 1, chapter 1, to this point, Jesus has been kind of uh, showing who he is with with public displays of power and of compassion at that. And this chapter seems to start in the same way. He's just fed 4,000 people. Why did he do that? So he could win a popularity contest? No, he did it because he had compassion for the people. They'd already been there for three days and had nothing to eat. And so from a little, he miraculously produced a lot because he cared for them. Now, now, we don't get an appreciation of how the crowd sees Jesus particularly. Maybe they just thought it was a catered event. Who knows? But that's, not, that's Mark's point. He moves on to, to kind of the first group of people where we see that they do not see Jesus clearly at all. And that's the Pharisees. The Pharisees are these kind of religious people, these religious leaders, these fanatics even who kind of know the law inside out and are kind of not very fond of Jesus because he's kind of shaking the boat a bit here. Verse 11, the Pharisees came and began to question Jesus to test him. They asked him for a sign from heaven. Now that's interesting because he's just produced this kind of great sign, right? He's just done done kind of another amazing kind of miracle of power and compassion. And the Pharisees are like, we want a sign right here, right now. How does Jesus respond to that? He's like, I'd love you to kind of come to know me, so kind of, what would you like? Do you want a donkey? Do you want kind of like a little fireball? Do you want a new jacket? I could do some signs for you. Or he doesn't do any of that. He says, no. Flat out, no. And I find that interesting and, and troubling in, in some ways. I was um, chatting to someone this week who's exploring Christianity for the first time. And, and he, he said, What's with all the faith and the invisibility of Jesus? Why couldn't I just see him and just kind of get something that I might believe in him? I mean, I see a few smiles in the audience. Like, that's a very real question, right? Why couldn't he do that? And why, in this case, when Jesus is right in front of them, why does he reject them? Well, a couple of things come to mind. I guess if Jesus did indulge them, would they swallow their pride? Because the thing is, is when they demand a sign that they are putting Jesus to the test. The kind of, uh, the kind of Greek word here for test it, it actually evokes this kind of um, uh, a process to, um, to to entrap Jesus. You know they're coming to him not with an open heart, but but with an agenda that they're trying to put Jesus in and trap him. Jesus knows that. And he knows that whatever he does, it's not going to uh, soften their pride. It's not going to open their closed hearts. But I think also it would have, if Jesus had indulged them, it would have proved that Jesus was their servant. As though kind of he was their dancing monkey. The thing is, is the Lord Jesus Christ, it cannot be domesticated. If you give him a chance, he will do great wonders. And we've seen that time and time again. He's just performed a great wonder. But when you demand him to dance for you, he will not be domesticated. And so Jesus uh, rejects their, their, their wanting to control him. He rejects uh, their, their kind of, uh, you know, well, what they want is, to, is in controlling him to, to gain by empirical means what is only accessible by faith. And what we're going to see even as we drill through this passage is that that faith is actually going to be through suffering and through service, and they haven't got eyes to see that. They're going to have to sort of follow along to see who Jesus really is a little bit further before they can be open enough to actually see it with their own eyes. And that's what's going to have to happen. And kind of In the next section, Jesus kind of uh, speaks to his disciples. And the disciples are a group of people who have been following Jesus. You know, they're struggling in their unbelief in all kinds of ways, and we're going to see that again in this passage. And in that unbelief, they're open to correction. So the Pharisees could have said, look, Jesus, we're, kind of, we're struggling to kind of make sense of you. Could we tag along a bit so that we might see your signs? Or kind of, Jesus, could you help us with our unbelief? Instead, they demanded a sign. They were rejected on that. But meanwhile, the disciples who keep following Jesus get to see more and more of him. And as the camera zooms into them, Jesus warns them. He says, be careful uh, that you might watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees. Jesus sometimes speaks in these kind of strange ways. And and the the disciples don't pick up on that. And they're starting to fret. Did we forget the bread? Did you bring the sandwiches? And Jesus is like, what are you talking about? It's not about uh, the bread, and even if it was about the bread, he's just showing that he's fed 4,000 people. So stop stressing about the lunch. What Jesus is talking about is kind of how, you know, at the center, you know, how, how the yeast activates the growth of the bread. He's talking about what activates the human body, the soul. He's talking about the heart. He's like, watch out for the heart and the intentions and the agenda of the Pharisees. Because while they ask for signs, They come with agenda. They come with this cancerous, contemptuous cynicism. And you need to watch out for that. Because no sign will solve it. Their heart will consume everything according to their agenda. The thing is, the disciples are wrestling with their own unbelief. And we see that as Jesus kind of critiques them, have you eyes but cannot see. They are misunderstanding constantly. They are struggling to keep up with who Jesus is, to put all their faith in him. And so we have these kind of two unbeliefs going on, as it were, this kind of contemptuous, cancerous, cynical disbelief from the Pharisees, closed-hearted, uh, not open to Jesus. And we have kind of the, the kind of still following Jesus, but struggling to kind of trust him with everything, struggling to make sense of him, faith, unbelief of, of the disciples. It's interesting how we see both of these unbeliefs track through this passage. And as I've been thinking about sort of belief and, and disbelief, I couldn't help but think of Hugh McKay, who's a social researcher and commentator. He wrote a book, uh, this book, uh, from an Australian context, Beyond Belief, uh, a couple of years back. And as he kind of looked at the Australian landscape, I mean, he himself is kind of a, what would you describe him like as, a, as, a, as, a, as an agnostic, who's maybe sympathetic towards Christianity, perhaps? Uh, but as he looks at the kind of the landscape of Australia, he, he sees kind of this decline of, of, of belief. Uh, except what he notes is a rise in what he would call the spiritual but not religious belief. Because what, what he's tracking is this kind of this me culture that's on the rise and this rejection of, of institutional faith, of religious faith, faith that kind of calls people to account. Instead, he sees the rise of the the spiritual. It's all about me and my spiritual kind of well-being, but I'm not religious. It's an interesting moment for us. As I've said a number of times, I think Newtown is a very spiritual place, but very hard to the gospel, particularly the gospel that calls us to give ourselves to Jesus. Similarly, I think even as Christians, I I struggle, we struggle with kind of what it is to believe, to give our whole life to Jesus. Um, This guy, Jeff der Stelp, Uh, wrote a book called Gospel Fluency, and the page one, sentence one, we are all unbelievers. He writes that as a Christian. Uh, But what he means by that is that we struggle to bring our whole life into the Lordship and under the Lordship of Christ. We believe in him, but we're sort of struggling to believe with our whole bodies, our whole minds, our whole self. So we're all struggling with unbelief in various ways. How are we going to track forward with that? Well, we see kind of some of that answer as we keep going with uh, Mark chapter eight, because what happens next is that Jesus kind of does this this physical analogy. It's the first time in the gospel, the only time I think, where he heals but not completely. So we kind of get this kind of picture of Jesus approaching a man who is blind. And so for all of this passage being about sight, we come across this blind person and Jesus touches him with the intimacy of his hands, with the intimacy of his care. And, and he kind of, as he, as he does that, he asks the blind man, what do you see? And he says, I see people, they look like trees walking around. And you're kind of like, oh, come on, Jesus, did you not have your breakfast that morning? Kind of You've sort of done a, a half effort here. But what's really happening? Because he touches him again and his sight is fully restored and he sees everything perfectly. I think he's making, Mark's certainly kind of bringing this story to here, but Jesus is also showing us that even as we see but not clearly, we will be able to. That there is a blindness or a distortion of vision that can be cured, there is an unbelief that can become belief. How does that happen? Well, we come to the very center question of, of Jesus' ministry, of, of his life, of his purpose. And as he talks with his disciples, as he's walking with them, he, he asks this question of them, this most central question. We've asked it already a couple of times through Mark's gospel. Jesus says, Who do people say that I am? It's kind of it's a, it's a, it's a weirdly personal question, isn't it? Like, have you ever sort of been hanging out with someone and they say, who do people say I am? I don't, it's kind of a bit arrogant, it's a bit weird. You might sort of talk about what people do, but to say who I am? Like, maybe I can think of sort of bad guys in movies that aren't recognized for who they are, and it's kind of like, do you know who I am? Now, I don't think Jesus is that guy in this passage, uh, but he, nonetheless, he asks them because it is the central question. Who, who is this Jesus. Now, he starts broad. He says, who do people say that I am? And the disciples answer in the order of the greats. Some say John the Baptist, some say uh, Elijah the prophet. And they're right to kind of see him as one of the greats because he's just done all these great works of power. And people are expecting great things from this power. You know, in the same way, kind of a couple of years back, Time magazine published the answer to who is the most influential person of all time. And to do that, they kind of used these guys, Skeena and Ward, who are a computer professor, scientist, and a, and a Google engineer, to crunch an algorithm that, that, that sort of analyzed every piece of digital literature available. And they kind of tracked all of that, and they said, who is the most influential person? Bing! Out came the answer from the computer. Jesus, the most influential person throughout time. But that's not enough. He's not just one of the greats. Who is he? is the question. Jesus makes it personal. He asks the disciples directly. He asks us tonight. Who do you say I am? Peter answers the Messiah. It's kind of very sort of religious language. It means the Christ. Not just a surname, but a, but a title, a kind of uh, identity. He is the Christ. And that, that title is particularly uh, meaningful throughout the whole Old Testament story because everyone's been longing for this Messiah to, to kind of bring glory to Israel, to restore everything that is broken. He's kind of the chosen one, the anointed one that, that, that people are waiting for from God to fix the mess. To give us a little bit more kind of insight into what people were thinking, particularly closer to the time of kind of, you know, when Peter says, confesses that Jesus is the Christ, I'm drawing on this um, Psalms of the Solomons. It's, it's written, it's not in our Bibles, uh, but it's kind of the intertestamental book between the Old Testament and New Testament. And I'm drawing on it because um, we see what people are looking for in the Messiah. Now, no one likes putting slabs of text up on the screen, so just look at the red bits. Um, the expectations of the Christ, they're not the son of David, you know, the great promised one uh, from King David, that, that God promised David, the kind of one who would uh, sit on the throne forever. There's drawing on that, to rule over Israel. So they're looking for this Messiah to be one of power, of kingship, of dominion, uh, and, and, and in the power to cleanse Jerusalem. What does that look like? Destroying lawless nations, gathering a holy people. Here is one of power and, and even kind of military power. They're expecting someone extraordinary. And Peter says, that's you, Jesus. He's right and he's very not right. Jesus affirms that he is the Christ. He asks them to be quiet about that, which is strange, right? Except the thing is, is because Peter's got it slightly wrong here, if not very wrong, He doesn't want people to import all their expectations, their wrong expectations of the Christ on Jesus. He wants people to encounter him personally and see who he is personally. This is how Jesus responds to Peter. He began to teach them. This is verse 31. Have have the Bible open if you can. This is a really important text. Uh, Verse 31 He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter's confession that Jesus is the Messiah has unlocked, as it were, kind of the actual meaning from Jesus' lips of who Jesus thinks he is as the Messiah. And it's a long way from this kind of military person of power. Instead, we talk, he's talking about being rejected, of suffering, of dying. And, and Peter can't sit between what his expectations are and kind of what Jesus is talking about. And he says, Jesus, kind of, you're having a really off day here. We're like We're expecting this, and we want you to be this. And what are you talking about? Now, it's a big call to rebuke Jesus, but he's really hoping that Jesus is the kind of Messiah he was looking for. Instead, Jesus cuts him off to rebuke him with with some of the harshest words we find in the gospel. He says, get behind me, Satan. That would have stopped him in his tracks. Here is the danger of the half-truth, because Peter's got it right in title that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. But, but the, the half-lie is, is the expectations that, that Peter has. And that, that half-truth, half-lie is powerfully deceptive. We know that Satan is the father of lies, uh, the master of deception. And Jesus rebukes Peter in that half-truth. As long as you hold on to that half-truth, that deception, that vision of Jesus of the Messiah, you will not see who he really is. And this is the upside down moment where Jesus flips everything on its head because his version of power is radically different to our version. Jesus' version of power it is to serve, to suffer, to hang on a cross and die for us that we might have life. He exposes the problem right down to the very heart of us. That we can't just be fixed with with moral Jesus. We need to be given a heart transplant. And Jesus dies that we might have life. That is so different to what Peter had in mind that, that he struggles to make sense of it. And so Jesus goes on. Verse 34, whoever wants to be my disciple." Must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. That's a, that's a big, big call to follow Jesus. To take up your cross. That is not going to be a fun thing. The cross was kind of this, this, this institutional act of torture. That kind of the cross that Jesus would die on, would suffocate on, naked, shamed, ridiculed. Before that happens, he said, if you want to follow me, that's the kind of stuff that you're going to be involved in. That's the kind of plight that you're going to walk into. Deny yourself. Whatever you are living for, whatever is driving you, I want you to give that up and give it to me, is what Jesus is saying. And for us postmoderns, when we can't trust anything else, no leader, no institution, all we've got left is the self, and Jesus is asking us to, to give that up and, and hand it over to him. Not to hate ourselves, but to deny ourselves and give over to him everything that we've held on to, and to trust him with. it. I don't know if we know what trust looks like in this postmodern age. Everyone has failed us. So, so why on earth would we do this? Why, why would anyone take that kind of like, oh, Jesus, that sounds great, I'm in. <laughs> I guess Peter has seen to this point that Jesus is good, that he's someone of great character, that, that he cares for people, that he's compassionate, that he's even the Lord, God in flesh. So there's a lot of kind of capital in the bank already. So when, Jesus, when, when Peter hears this, he sort of he must take stock here of what Jesus is actually calling him to do whether Jesus is actually worthy of handing everything over to he goes on verse thirty five Jesus says whoever wants to save their life will lose it but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Whatever you are doing to kind of build that security that nest egg uh, that that comfort That's going to go nowhere, Jesus says, ultimately. But whoever loses everything and hands it over to Jesus will ultimately save it. Jesus will go on to hand everything of his over to us. He will die for us. He is asking of us nothing that he won't give to us. Because the way of salvation is not going to be through self-assent, through good works. Instead, it's going to cut to the very heart of the problem, our heart, even our offensiveness before God. And Jesus is going to ask us to hand everything over to him, to repent of living a life that is just for us, And to act in faith and say, I'm going to follow you and trust you with everything. Now, I want to say that kind of the life that Jesus offers is better than the one you're going to lose. And ultimately, it's going to be true. I was catching up with someone today who said, you know, I was really touched by this passage. You know, it just, it reminds me of the ultimate security I have. That no matter what happens in this life, I'm sorted with Jesus and I'm going to see him face to face. But I tell you what, there are going to be times in this life where you're not going to get your best life now. You're going to get the cross. You're going to be shamed. You're going to be vulnerable. You're going to be suffering. Because in so many ways, living for Jesus is ridiculous. But yet he is good. And just as he died on that cross, he rose again. And so in those seasons in our life when when it does not feel like the good life, And when we're going, Jesus, are you really good as I trust you with everything? We need to act in faith that just as Jesus was not left to the tomb, we too will be vindicated and raised to new life and vindicated that following Jesus is the most glorious, is the most beautiful, and is the ultimate life. This affects everything, it affects my parenting. The kind of, this kind of self-denying, living for God and for others kind of life. Nothing has shown me my selfishness and my sinfulness like parenting children and raising a dog. Oh my goodness. And yet Jesus calls me to, to not live for myself, but to live for others. It's going to affect your job and kind of the way you think about your ambition. Because Jesus is saying, I want you to hand that over to me. I want to I put a new heart in you. I want you to trust me with my plans for you. It's going to change the way you relate to people and particularly to the people who frustrate the heck out of you. And I'm not just talking kind of in that cliched sense of kind of like, you know, they just might cross the bear. I, I mean like when you're called to forgive and be gracious, when it's deeply costly. How can we live a life like this? To it tell you what, only by faith that the Holy Spirit of power who raised Jesus Christ from the dead to the glory of the Father is at work in you. That is the only way you can live this self-denying, God-glorifying life. I was reminded just last week of the story of Corrie Ten Boom, a Dutch watchmaker in Holland during World War II. And as she was in Holland in that time, uh, Nazis invaded, and as a Christian, in a Christian family, uh, they felt appalled by what Nazi Germans Germany were, were doing to the Jews, to, to God's people, as she would say. And every day as she watched the atrocities and, and as she considered how she might respond, she prayed this, Lord Jesus, I offer myself for your people in any way, any place, any time. Now, when you pray a prayer in that context, you're not living for comfort. You're not living for security. You're not living for your way to get ahead in life. You're living in a way that is risky and is likely to get you killed. As her family harbored many Jews, she put herself in harm's way because she felt that was God's calling for her. As she denied herself and lived for God, she felt that that was the responsible, moral, and God-glorifying action. She watched horrible things unfold and as she was telling her story for many years to come, she found herself well after World War II in a room where she came across one of the Nazi officers who had killed and tortured people in front of her and she feels this this rage well up inside her as, as a Christian. It's kind of, you know, love your enemy just kind of gets flooded out with kind of like the rage, this kind of this righteous anger. And the soldier who hasn't quite recognized Corrie comes up to her and says, I've become a Christian and and I think I need forgiveness for the horrible things I've done in my life. And Corrie says, I cannot forgive you for what you've done and what I've seen. But then as she prays to God, She says, but the power of Christ in me means he has forgiven you and I will too. She sums up for me beautifully what the self-denying, at great cost, God-glorifying life looks like as she takes every bold step of faith to live for God and not for herself. Where have we traveled today? We've kind of gone through this journey through Mark 8, looking at kind of at how unbelief tracks through to seeing who Jesus really is. Now, I don't know kind of where everyone's at in the room tonight. Some of you might be in kind of the Pharisee camp, kind of skeptical, uh, even contemptuous towards Jesus. I want to say to you, uh, uh, open your mind to the possibilities of who Jesus is as a person of history. Maybe you're kind of in that kind of pre-confession state of the disciples who are just, who are really kind of, they're curiously following along. They're almost like part of the crowd, as it were. They don't quite understand who Jesus is fully, but they're curious and they're kind of leaning in all the same. I want to I say to you, uh, keep, keep following that. Keep exploring. Keep seeking to understand who Jesus is on his terms. Uh, a whole bunch of us in the room have said, yep, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. And so you you're like Peter, you've, kind of, you've confessed him as Christ and on this side of the cross we know kind of the fullness of what that means and what we've been called into. But perhaps you're still struggling with, with unbelief in various ways, struggling to bring the fullness of your life under the Lordship of Christ. And so I want to say a couple of things. Firstly, rejoice in the eternal security you have in Jesus Christ and bring every unbelief, every struggle before him trusting that he is actually good for everything since he's the Lord of the universe and the one who gave himself up for you. And that's quite the journey. That's discipleship. That's walking with Jesus, with others, growing in Christ-likeness. and rejoicing that journey as hard as it is because God is good. He promises to vindicate us. Let me finish with kind of a prayer that I heard just this week off the lips of my Eight-year-old son. As we're kind of reading a passage, I can't remember what passage it was from the kind of kid's Bible. Um, I didn't think he was even paying attention. Sometimes it's a bit of a struggle in my house. Um, it comes to prayer time, and uh, Callum uh, puts his hands together and says, uh, Dear Jesus, help me know who I am. <laughs> we sung a song just before the break that said, Who am I that your son gave his life for me? That's what he did. And it's my joy to follow him. And it's my prayer that it will be your joy too, to know who he is and to follow him with your whole life. Amen.